0: But we are in the book of Ruth today. We're going to do chapter one. So uh, I have quite a bit of of notes. So uh, instead of reading the entire chapter, um, we're just going to read the first five verses. uh, And I'm going to preach the whole whole chapter. So if you're able to stand, would you stand with me? We're going to read the first five verses of the book of uh, Ruth, chapter one. And then uh, after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. And of course, you're thanking the Lord. He would be so kind to give us the scriptures so that we can know him specifically so we can see Christ. But more than that, uh, the things that the Lord teaches us t- t- this morning, we're wanting to say yes to. We're wanting to say we want to obey. We're wanting to, uh, we're wanting to say, Lord, show me the good news of Jesus so I can, I can trust in him more. So start in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These two, uh, these took Moabite wives and the name of one was Orpah and the other name was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Both Malon and Kilion died uh, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you so much for the opportunity you've given us as a, as a church to study the book of Ruth together, um, and we pray that as we, as we sojourn through this book for the next four weeks and we see your providential hand moving uh, through both good situations uh, and difficult situations that we would rejoice knowing that you're a good God uh, whose sovereignty we can trust and not just as we see it on the pages of the scripture but as we experience it in our own lives and we thank you for um, the, the small picture of the gospel in the book of Ruth, so that we can understand and that we can know who Christ is. Uh, I pray that all of us would see Christ in the book of Ruth and that we rejoice for what Jesus has done in our own life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we're going through the book of Ruth today, uh, or chapter one. Uh, we don't know who wrote it, we're, we're unsure. I'm going to do a little bit of an introduction before we hop in so you can know kind of what's going on. Uh, We don't know who wrote it. Uh, It was written probably around 1000 BC. So uh, written several years after everything that actually happened in here. Uh, The theme of the book of Ruth um, is really known as you get towards the very end. And as you get towards the very end of the book of Ruth and you have this little genealogy, you see that there's a genealogy of David listed, David being uh, the greatest king in Israel's history. And so the theme theme as you finally get to the end is you realize that the Lord is saving or preserving the line of the king of Israel. And so uh, because of this story of Ruth, we can see how David is actually going to bring about, God's going to bring about King David. And so uh, one one commentator, breaks down the book of Ruth in this way. Act one or chapter one is the crisis for the royal line. There's a crisis that the royal line is not going to be preserved. Chapter two is there's a ray of hope now that the royal line is going to be preserved. Chapter three is there's a complication now. Uh, Drama. Will it happen for the royal line? And then in in chapter four, we see the rescue of the royal line. We see how that God brings rescue to them. And so, uh, in the background of the entire book of Ruth is the question, which is, will King David's line uh, be preserved? Wh- will we finally see that King David is going to, well, his granddad, going to be born? So, uh, but also, there's some other things going on in the background. All fall, we studied the book of Judges. And as we, as we talked about in the book of Judges, if you remember, it's just a really bad period. Uh, there's a downward spiral of depravity. Well, the book of Ruth takes place in the time period of the judges. So this is before there's kings. It's just the period of the judges where different rulers would come up at different times, but mostly the people of Israel uh, did what was right in their own eyes. And so uh, as we're reading the book of Ruth, you need to know that the period of history for Israel is bad. It's it's not good at all. It's during the time where there's both civil and military functions for these these judges that they're playing. um, And the people of Israel uh, in this particular time are doing what's right in their own eyes. They're not following God. And the other thing that we can see that's happening in the, back, in the background of the book of Ruth, which is really guiding all the people's decisions, it happens there in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, so us when, when the judges ruled, there was a famine. So whenever there's no food, people are making lots of decisions based on how are we going to eat we don't have to make that usually besides like it's 12, where are we going to go? But for them, it's not, it's not near as simple as that. And so uh, that's kind of the background of the things that are happening. It's in the period of judges. It's in the period where most Israel is doing what's right in their own eyes. There's not a whole lot of righteous people uh, and there's a famine what about the placement? It's, it's placed in a certain place in our Old Testament. So let's talk about that for a second. For us, uh, it's placed right after the book of Judges. You got Judges, Ruth. And the reason why is because, uh, they're in the same historical time period. But in a lot of Jewish traditions, the book of Ruth is placed right after the book of Proverbs. Why would that happen? Why would, what would be the case of that? Well, um, if you remember, the very last thing in in the book of Proverbs is Proverbs 31. And so when you read read Proverbs 31, you think to yourself, "Well, this woman's completely, you know, unattainable. There's no way that we could ever be like her." And it's as if the writers of the the uh, Old Testament and, and Jewish history are saying, oh, you want a real life example of what that practically looks like of Proverbs 31. Well, great. Here's the book of Ruth. And there's lots of similarities between the two. As John Sailhammer, my Old Testament professor, I got to actually take him for one class. He pointed out lots of similarities where in, in the literary structure of Proverbs 31 and Ruth, where you can see, she's not perfect. Ruth isn't perfect. But nevertheless, uh, there's, there's, there's similarities between the Proverbs 31 and and the character Ruth in the book of Ruth because there's lots of literary uh, things that are happening. Both women are energetic and active, Proverbs 31 and Ruth 2. Both, both women supply the needs of their households, Proverbs 31 Ruth 2. Both are extremely kind. They show this thing, chesed, uh, Proverbs 31 and Ruth 3. Both are praised by their husbands in Proverbs 31 and Ruth 3. Uh, Boaz is known at the city gates by the elders and so is the Proverbs 31's husband's wife in Proverbs 31 and Ruth 4. Both work hard, Proverbs 31, Ruth 2. Both fear God, Proverbs 31, Ruth 1. So Ruth is in a lot of ways a... practical example of what the Proverbs 31 wife looks like. And so uh, I think the placement in the Old Testament is also good to know, which is amazing because Ruth is not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. She's a Gentile brought into by God through grace and will be used by God to even preserve the line of the king. Um, So the story, when you're looking at the book of Ruth, there's some main characters uh, of which we've basically seen here in the intro. Uh, We have grieving Naomi who was in uh, Bethlehem and her husband Elimelech moved her some 50 miles east, not good to go east, uh, to Moab out of out of the promised land into Gentile land, uh, and her husband dies and her sons die, so you have grieving Naomi. You have Ruth, who was a Moabite, one of her sons married, but she's very loyal. And then at the very end, which we'll see, not this week, but later on, this man, Compassionate Boaz. These are kind of the three main characters. Uh, and so some, some writers even say <coughs> that Naomi is the main character of, of the book of Ruth. Uh, it's named Ruth because she's the one that's been redeemed, uh, but some, some would say that even Naomi is the main character, and that's, that would make sense. I mean, Naomi is emblematic uh, in a lot of ways, kind of the, her story is the larger story of Israel, and Naomi is, is a picturesque understanding of what's happening in Israel, how they have wandered away, but then as they're being brought back God's <coughs> doing an amazing work in her and really what he's going to do in Israel. But also, some could say Boaz is the, is the uh, main character as well because he's the redeemer. So um, there's lots of ways to understand. Of course, it makes sense that Ruth is the the main character, but it's a little bit of a surprise because, as I said, she's a Moabite, uh, the only Old Testament book named after a non-Israelite uh, in the entire Bible. And Moabites had a, a long-standing um, uh, time where they were enemies with the Israelites and so uh, it's interesting that that we would have the book be named Ruth um, but uh, let's see here she's present in most every scene Ruth is except for in Ruth 4 where uh, Boaz is going to the city gates trying to redeem her so uh, while most would say Ruth is the main character and I agree with that I would also say that Naomi is certainly uh, given her a run for her money for the main character because she's emblematic of the larger story of of, of the Old Testament, Israel. Um, so what are some reasons why the book of Ruth should be something we'd study? I'd say there's at least three reasons. Number one, the book of Ruth is the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 all scripture is breathed out by God and so since this is scripture, it's profitable for us to read and understand but more so um, Matthew 4.4 4, or at least at the same reason because we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God and Ruth is no exception. So we should study it because it's the word of God. But also that in inside this story we get to see of course always the larger story of God's redeeming grace. We get to see and understand uh, from another perspective the gospel and it's always great for us to understand the gospel further through the book of Ruth and so Ruth contributes to the overarching story of redemption and we get to see redemption in the book of Ruth and it gives us a greater understanding of God it gives us a greater understanding of what he's doing and it advances the story of the, rede- the work of God in redemption from Adam all the way to the end and it also magnifies for us this amazing Hesed, or uh unstoppable love that God has for us. Um, And the third reason why, which we'll even see today, is it it helps us appreciate more the providential hand of God in our everyday lives. We're going to see The providential hand is just how he's sovereign, working in people's lives through both good and bad circumstances. And we experience that all the time. There's an old adage that we're either in the middle of tragedy, we're about to come out of tragedy, or about to go into tragedy. At at all points, because we live in a broken world, that's the case. And so we get to see and we get an advantage point of how God is moving and people he cares about because he cares about everybody's lives. And so that's a good reason for us to understand is to get a greater appreciation of the, uh, God's providence. So, uh, we're going to look at chapter one, and it's broken down into three sections. And so, we're going to look at them section by section. The first section is, or scene one. You can go ahead and put it up. uh, Redemption and providence. Scene one is the sojourn and tragedy from chapters uh, verses one through five. So, we see in the days of the judges, uh, there in verse one, which we know is not a good time period. Men were not following, and women were not following after after God as they should. On the whole, there was lots of rebellion and we see that there's a famine plays a major role uh, in the entire background of the book of Ruth to help us understand. And then you see in the days where the judges ruled, this is the irony, there was a famine in the land and the man of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is the house of bread. This is what it literally means. The house there's a famine in the house of bread. That's like there's no pancakes at IHOP. It's it's IHOB has no bread. What's going on here? That's the real meaning of IHOB. That little thing they did last fall was nothing. IHOB is International House of Bread. We're talking about Bethlehem. There's no food. And so whenever there's no food at IHOB, what are we gonna do? Uh, Not only is this you shouldn't leave is, is, the big, is the big idea here. You have a man named Elimelech where there's no, fo- there's no food in Bethlehem. And so what does he do? He sojourns east to the country of Moab. He leaves the promised land where God is going to bring blessing first and goes east around the Dead Sea to the country of Moab. Not a good idea. That's not on the whole, it's not the best idea to leave one of the few places that God's likely to bring food first. So we see Elimelech making not great decisions. Now we can sympathize with him. A man wants to provide for his family, Uh, but this is a unique situation. Uh, If there's a famine in Rock Hill, this isn't the promised land. We can just go to Charleston, or we can just go to Atlanta, or we can just go wherever the food is, right? Uh, But when you're in the promised land, and you're the people of God, you don't leave the promised land and try to figure out, I'll just go to pagan lands. That's not what you should do. So we can sympathize with him to want him to provide for his family. But since you're in the promised land, it's not like you should just migrate to another place. You're in the promised land and God's presence is promised to dwell with his people, Israel. And so you shouldn't leave. But what, what about this famine? Why, why would there be a famine here, well, as we said, the background's the book of Judges, and so not always, but usually, but sometimes when there's a famine, uh, it's a result of God's judgment, and so I believe in this particular case, um, this is a, a result. The famine is a result of God's judgment on His people because of the background of of the book of Judges, and even specifically, uh, what happens in the family of Elimelech and Naomi is because of sin. Uh, it's because of God's judgment upon them because they they. Leave uh, Bethlehem and go go away, and this is why the tragedies come to them. Um, so uh, they know that they, they know the words that they're not supposed to leave. Uh, they if famine comes, God's blessing is if in the old covenant God promised blessing for His people whenever they're obeying, but when they're not obeying, whenever they're being disobedient, He promises that defeat of enemies would come. He promises that their crops would fail, etc., And that's what's going on here. And he even warned for, for more disobedience in Deuteronomy 28, that there would be infertility and famine. And th- those things are present in the book of Ruth. And so um, because of these things, we can see that God's word is coming true in the, in the people of these family. And the crops were failing, the barns were empty. And uh, this is li- likely because of, of disobedience, even in this family. Now, The famine should have led these people to repent. They should have said, Lord, we're sorry, bring blessing to us, and likely, because he's promised in Deuteronomy, that uh, the curse would have been lifted away from them. But instead of repenting, Elimelech takes matters in his own hands, as we see in the first part of chapter one, verse two, uh, and he he leaves Bethlehem and he goes to Moab. Now, ironically, uh, Elimelech, the name means, my God is king, but God was not the king of his heart. he wanted to take matters in his own hands. These are like the Christians of the world that kind of live like the rest of the world, Elimelech was. And so uh, Sinclair Ferguson says, instead of turning back to the Lord, they turned their backs on the Lord and they went to go live in Moab. Instead of mourning over the sin of the land and asking God to restore things, they left their, the, their family left the fields of Bethlehem to go to the fields of Moab, not Not a good decision. And even while they're there after Elimelech dies, uh, we see poor decisions made where uh, the two sons, Malon and Kilion actually marry two Moabite women. Now we know that Ruth is redeemed later, but there is a law against marrying Moabite women as well. And they broke that. So here we can just stop and we can just from first application, we can see Elimelech is not leading his family well, but the one thing he's trying to make sure doesn't happen Happens. There's a famine. We should leave so we can go eat, so we can stay alive. He gets over here, and the one thing he's trying to avoid, which is death, happens. He dies. Um, And so we can see there's a challenge for us then as men that we need to lead our families well. We need to lead our families by keeping them in the church, not leading them away. We need to lead our families well and love our 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 children and our wives well, not lead them towards cities of idolatry and idolatry, but lead them back towards the Lord. Uh, We need to lead, uh, not let our children marry unbelievers, but instead let them grow up so that they love Christ, love the gospel, marry Christians, and then they can do the same thing that we're trying to do and continue uh, to raise their children to know the Lord. Just a quick, easy application from the very beginning in the intro we can see is that we need to not be like Elimelech. So they go as I said, to the country of Moab. Now, it's just 50 miles away. Now, that sounds like, oh, that's a lot for walking. It is a lot for walking. Um, But they go 50 miles away around the Dead Sea to this Moab uh, where, uh, as we know, this is a pagan land. The Moabites were the people from Judges 3 where Ehud stabbed the king, the Moabite fat king, the very fat man. He lost his knife inside his blubber. He stabbed him when he was on the commode. Um, you, You can go look at that. It's the greatest one of my favorite sermons I've ever preached. Not the greatest. It's just fun that a guy preached, uh, stabbed a guy on the, t- on the toilet. Um, so that's around Judges 3. It could be that, uh, Judges is really long. It could be that the book of Ruth is taking place around that time. And uh, in, in Judges 3 maybe into, I don't know, 7 or so. Uh, but the Moabites uh, themselves are, are pretty bad pagans. The Moabites trace their origin back to the incestuous relationship that Lot had with his oldest daughter in Genesis 19, and so this is this is the beginnings of the Moabite people. They were born out of incest, um, and so the Moabites also, whenever Israel was trying to leave. <clears throat> Um, Egypt and go back home to the promised land. The Moabites were the ones that resisted Israel being able to pass through their land to get to the promised land. Uh, We also see it in in Numbers 25 where the Moabite women came out and seduced the men of Israel to cause them to sin against God. So there's a history of these particular people uh, and their pagan ways. And so this is where Elimelech decides to move his family to the incest-starting, God-resisting, idolatrous, idolatrous, where women seduce the men of Israel place. This is where he decides to move his family. This is not good. So as his name is, my God is king, God is not his king. Naomi, however, means pleasant. Uh, And so she was likely a very pleasant woman until she gets to this point. She's going to change her name at the end of the chapter. And you have Malon and Kilion. These are... Uh, if you're going to name your children, you shouldn't name them sick and dying. Th- this is basically their names are translated into weakling or sick and frail and dying or leading to death. Uh, so you already know what's, th- what's going to happen to them. They're not going to make it. <laughs> they're just not going to be able to make it if your children are named that. Um, so you've got swan flu and, and you know pneumonia are your children. Like, good luck living. Uh, so they, they move them over to Moab. And it says, this is where it gets interesting. They, they moved swine flu and uh, pneumonia. And it says, the Ephraimites rebe- were from Bethlehem and, and Judah. And they went to the country of Moab. And here it is. They remain there. That's, that's pretty bad. Like that, that's a key that we don't need to miss out on. They, they remain there. And as we see, they lived there for at least, the very, the very last words of verse four, for at least 10 years. It, it, some, some were thinking even into 15. They were there a long time. That's a long time. Now, if you're just 50 miles away, if you're just 50 miles away from the promised land, and the second biggest decision of your life is who you're gonna marry, besides who, if I'm, am I gonna follow Yahweh or not? The second biz, biggest decision is who am I gonna marry is just 50 miles away to obey. It's not that hard to walk back, find an Israelite woman to marry, and then walk back to the, to the unpromised land. But that's not what they do. They take wives. So they remain there. And then w- while they're there, Elimelech dies. Um, and so uh, Naomi's left with her two sons. And then it says, these took Moabite wives. So after Elimelech died, um, Naomi's just trying to hold it together. She's doing the best that she can. Um, and so, but nevertheless, her, her sons take uh, Moabite wives. Now when we see Elimelech, uh, well, we should say this first. Elimelech dying is a, a sad bit of providence for Naomi. Um, the very thing, as I said, he was trying to do is live and that's why he leaves and what happens, he dies. And so Naomi already feels, uh, we, we wanna enter into, we don't wanna uh, cast blame on Naomi here. We wanna enter into her pain. Um, that's the point of, I think, the book of Ruth is to enter in, not be mad at, but enter into Naomi's pain. Her, her husband, who's trying to lead her the best that he knows how, although he's not necessarily a great follower of God, dies. And so she's super sad, super sad. And then after that, uh, her husband's take wives, no, we don't see it in our, in our, in our Old Testament. These, this took uh, is the key word. This is the same word in Judges 21, 23. If you remember, uh, whenever the, the, sh- the women at Shiloh were dancing and the Israelites kind of snuck out and took the women wrongfully to be their wives, that that has a negative connotation towards marriage. Same word used in this root. So the taking of Moabite wives is is helping us see that there's actually a negative connotation about this way of getting married, meaning what they did was wrong. And further, we we also know in Deuteronomy 7, three and four, God expressly forbids marrying outside of Israel. So when we say they took Moabite wives, uh, this is the writer trying to help you see that these marriages have a negative w- way to think about it. God's not saying this is good. He's saying it's actually bad. And so, um, and you can even read, uh, as we keep reading, both Orpah and Ruth, the, their, Malon and Kilion's wives, are both barren. And so this is just another illustration for us to see that because they're barren for almost 10, roughly 10, ten years or so, this is a, a, a punitive hidden hand of God on the marriage. We know in Matthew 28:18 that there's barrenness for marriages that, on the whole, that God doesn't think are right. And so um, the barrenness is a way for us to see that God didn't approve of these marriages. Uh, now, this only magnifies for us. As we, as we talk about that marriage between Malon uh, and Ruth being bad, because Kilion married Orpah, uh, we're going to see what God does through the book of Ruth for Ruth, which shouldn't make us think, well, gosh, what the world, Ruth is bad, no, no, no. It only magnifies for us the redemption that God brings to Ruth, how much he loves her and what he does for her, knowing that all of it started where it started, that he, he still cares for her, he loves her, she's gonna become a follower of Yahweh in verse 18, and then all of a sudden, he brings her and grafts her into the family of God, and she actually is going to give birth to, um, eventually, uh, in her line, not only King David, but Jesus. So this is magnifying for us the redemption of God. So they were there about 10 years, and as they're doing that, uh, they didn't walk the the 50 miles away. and they married these two women. They took Moabite wives. One was named Orpah and the other's named Ruth. Orpah could be Neck. This just kind of tradition that her name could be wreck. Neck, as in she turned her neck away from them and went back home to her Moabite gods. We don't know that for sure. It's just, I mean, these are Moabite names, not Israelite names. So the history of those names, is hard to tell. Ruth historically could mean friend or refreshment. Uh, and so, of course, Orpah's got the bad connotation. Ruth has got the good connotation because as you go, Orpah makes the bad decision and Ruth makes the great decision. Could be. We don't know. Uh, But I like it. We'll we'll go with that. We'll say Ruth means friend and refreshment and Orpah means neck. Um, So (coughs) now you have (coughs) Malon and Kilion, sick and dying, swine flu and pneumonia. They die. Enter into Naomi's troubles again. Now she's lost her husband and now she's lost her two sons. She's just devastated here. You can... You can just picture Naomi, a, 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 the providential hand of God has brought her yet another bitter pill to swallow uh, with the passing of her two sons. Naomi is an absolute broken woman. You can, you can just picture her after her third funeral having to go to, she's a widow in a foreign land. She has no significance. She has no husband to protect her and provide her in this particular time period, that would be key. She has no sons. She has no children from those sons with her, their wives. She has no social standing, she has no hope, she has no family line, and she's aging. And so we can identify with her grief and what she needs more than anything is hope. Sinclair Ferguson says this way, but worse is to come. As though Naomi's grief were not enough, after having lived in Moab for a decade, uh, Malon and Kilian die. Picture Naomi standing at their third grave as we see her sad and tortured face. Are there tears? Is she now so emotionally exhausted by sorrow, she's unable to even find relief in tears? A mourner who cannot even weep. Naomi is left without her two sons, and without her husband, she is, and this is something that the Old Testament is particularly sensitive, left in the position of someone experiencing one of the most painful curses. There is no living fruit from her womb. She is bereft, alienated, and lonely. In these cruel losses, she must feel that God has thrust his sword into her heart, twisted it, and then thrusted it even deeper. It is surely tragedy to lose a husband, but why has this sovereign Lord thrust the sword in again and twisted it around her soul? Weakling and pining, another two ways you can translate the son's names. Weakling and pining, male and Achillean, may be the meaning of her son's names, but in an early sense of their physical frailty suggested by these names was no preparation for her for the stunning and numbing pain Naomi feels and now experiences in their premature deaths. And so Naomi is broken. She's broken. And we need to know that that's, uh, that's painful. So if, if you are, and I mean, I can I a can bit understand this. The last year has been difficult. If you are in the midst of that tragedy you're coming at the end and you're just broken what you need and what i need and what we all needed to hear is hope naomi like us didn't know how it was going to turn out we don't know how brokenness right now in our lives are going to turn out neither did she and what she needed was hope she needed the providential hand of god to come and move in her life and bring her hope now we have the privilege of knowing her whole story and we see that god is good That he's sovereign and his providential hand is going to be kind to her, and so he's going to bring her from emptiness to fullness, from tragedy to glory. And so the question is, can she can she trust God? And the question for you and I is, can we trust God when he's going to bring us in the midst of emptiness into and out of tragedy into hope? Can we do that? We we should be able to. You can trust the Lord. You can trust the Lord, and so let's worship God in the midst of our suffering like Job does in Job chapter one. And that's the, that's the uh, it's challenge for her. And we're going to see uh, as we get towards the end of chapter one, she's bitter and that's okay. That's okay. God can handle bitterness. So that's the first section we see here. Is she's left without her two sons and her husband. Now we're going to start scene two of chapter one. Um, scene two is the return from tragedy. So uh, what we're going to see in, in chapter two is, 6 through 18, uh, you are gonna put up scene two. Uh, we're going to see uh, she's returning. So she's, she's in Moab and she's coming home. She's on this long road home. And as she's going to do that, we're going to look at three different little kind of conversations she has or three different exchanges. So she hears, this is, this, she needs hope. First verse out of the block, verse six is hope. Notice the goodness of God bringing grace to her in verse six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab for she had, here it is, heard in the fields of Moab, she's out there, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She's out in Moab trying to find food and somehow she hears there's food back at IHob. There's food back at the International House of Bread. Stuff's going on at, at Bethlehem. I don't know I don't know how she heard it. How'd she hear it? Did someone put it on the gram? Who knows? She doesn't have it, but somehow that's Instagram. I just found out that people call it the gram. Um, so, uh How does she hear it? We don't know, but what we do know is this. It's the the providential hand of God that lets her realize, you've been brought all the way out here to Moab, but you can come back to Bethlehem. God is being kind to her. Now, I want you to see the key word here. It's in verse six. She arose with her uh, daughters-in-law too. Here it is to return. You're going to see the word return, I think, 11 more times in the Hebrew uh, throughout this chapter. It, it, it's like eight times in English, but at least in Hebrew, about 11. So the word return is the key word here. God visited his people. He's being kind. And this visit uh, is going to be, and, and uh, when it says that the Lord had visited his people, Uh, This is going to be amazing because he's visiting not just with food, but he's going to eventually visit with overcoming infertility as well. Which, by the way, if you're struggling with, the Lord can do that for you. He can overcome infertility in our own lives. And he's going to visit his people. Israel is God's people, and he has not forgotten them. It may seem that that's the case, but he has not forgotten his people. And she heard it. The Lord has brought brought food, so let's go. And you can see her daughter's-in-law, Orpah, and Ruth are going to come with her. And so uh, she set out from where she was in Moab with her daughters-in-law. And it says that here they went to return to the land of Judah. Now Judah's like the region and they're going to Bethlehem. It's like she's returning to South Carolina, but she's going to Bethlehem. She's, so Judah's the region. So that's where they're returning from Moab back to uh, back to Bethlehem, back to Judah. And so we're gonna see now in chapters, uh, I'm sorry, chapter one, verses eight through 10, uh, 11 through uh, 14, and then 15 through 18, three little conversations she's gonna have. So first exchange comes at verse eight. You can go ahead and stick the little first exchange under there for me. Hit the next, there we go. So there's exchange number one. Here you're going to see uh, Naomi's proposal and Ruth and Orpah's protest in verses eight through 10. So she says, But Naomi said to her her daughters-in-law, go, return to your mother's house. She's she's leaving Moab and they're following her. She's like, don't come with me. Just go back. I'm gonna go back by myself. Go return to your mother's house. It's interesting she says mother's house and not father's house. It's quite interesting uh, because mother's house, it it could be that their dads were dead, but likely not. It's probably, uh, mother's house is a phrase in the the Old Testament in in the Hebrew that's like, Referring to go back to Moab where you can find love and marriage. Go back to where you can get married again. So, re- to return to your mother's house. So, go home and find love and marriage back in Moab, is basically what she's saying. Return to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them and she lifted up their voices and wept. So, she's very upset. Um, enter into her, her despair. She's very sad. But then they, they protest. And they said, no, we will return with you to your people. So you can see there's a, there's a big thing of returning here. And he said, she's, she prays for them in a lot of ways. She wishes that Yahweh to be merciful for them in the harsh circumstances. She believed God was indeed kind still, even though she's bitter. Uh, and she wants this kindness to extend to them. She wants them, uh, even beyond the borders of Israel in Moab, for them to find hope. And she prays that God would grant this to them, grant a husband to them. She kisses them. She's weeping to them. And they say, no, we're not going to do it. Which brings us to the next exchange. You can go next uh, in verses 11 through 14. Here we're going to see Naomi persist to go back. Uh, uh, Orpah is going to bid farewell, but Ruth is going to cling. She's going to make a commitment. Verse 11. But Naomi uh, said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? And she's going to try to help them understand uh, in verses 11 through 13. This doesn't make any sense for you to try to stay with me. Uh, You can see it here. Have I sons in my womb that I may bec- they may become your husbands? In this time, that would that would that could happen. Turn back, my daughters. Go away. Uh, go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. And if I should even have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and I should bear sons, would you therefore just wait until they're grown before and you would just refrain in marriage? Uh, she's basically just telling him, um, Listen, Orpah, Ruth, it's not going to happen. I'm not. I don't even have any children. If I did, would you literally wait for them to come of age? You're going to sit around and wait. You're better off without me. Go back home and find a husband. Um, and she explains that that would be the best idea. And then she explains her perspective right here in verse 13b. Know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She recognizes here that... Uh, That it's the providential hand of God of bringing these things. And I would say because of disobedience uh, on the behalf of Elimelech and the family. Uh, But she's not uh, making a moral accusation against God. She's just saying, why go with me? You shouldn't stay with me. These things are happening to me in the providence of God. Things could even get worse. So don't stay with me. It's exceedingly bitter. And so uh, she's not necessarily understanding everything uh, correctly but she does see that God's involved in her life. Uh, she's, she's not an atheist. She believes in God's sovereign control. It's kind of the equivalent of when things are not going bad for you, you can, you can say when you're mad, you're just mad and maybe you're bitter at God. I believe in God, but I'm just kind of mad at him right now. This is kind of where she is, which is totally understandable. She's lost her husband and her two children. And so uh, after first rejecting Naomi's proposal, Ruth and Orpah are going to make their decision. So they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Ruth clung to her. So what does Orpah decide? She uses uh, not uh, the Lord's wisdom, but practical. You can see what happens in 15. Uh, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Orpah uh, was an idolater and remained an idolater. She went back to the gods of Moab. She went back to her, the people of Moab and went back to the gods of Moab. However, Ruth, and I mean, this is the most accidental evangelistic encounter that Naomi ever had. Naomi was doing everything wrong when it comes to trying to lead somebody to God, right? And this is, she does. Uh, she's going to see Ruth get converted in front of her despite her bad evangelistic endeavors. Uh, so Orpah makes the decision, no, I'm going to go back. Practically, that makes sense to me. I should just go back. Ruth's not, uh, or, Naomi's not giving good advice, but uh, Ruth, it says, Ruth clung to her. And so we're gonna see the third exchange in verses 15 through 18. In this third exchange, we're going to see what I would argue would be the conversion of Ruth. And she said, see, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Return, another word, return. Return with your sister-in-law and go back. But Ruth says this. Now, uh, from 16 to 18, uh, the end of 17, there's this thing called a chiastic structure in in the Bible, which just means maybe, you know, like there's A prime or there's A, and then way down at the bottom, there's A prime, and then there's B, and there's B prime. And then when you get to the middle, the middle sentence is like the big point of what's trying to make. That's basically what, just think of it as like, uh, you know, one of these little deals. And when you get to the big point, that's that's the the amazing thing that we're trying to see. So we're seeing a chiastic structure here uh, in these particular verses where in 16, you say, uh, do not Urge me to return uh, from following you. And that kind of, that's if that's A, A prime is at the bottom of 17. May the Lord do to me uh, also, if anything departs from me. And then you got the next B, which is for where you go, uh, I'll go and where you lodge, I'll lodge. And the B prime would be uh, where you die, I'll die and there are, you should be buried. So the main little point, as you get to the chiastic structure, the middle, which is like the centerpiece of chapter one, your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. So that would be where I think Ruth is making a, a, a confession of a, being a follower of Yahweh. And she's converted. She confesses her faith. And the text is amplifying it for us. Wanting us to see in a chiastic structure. Hebrew does this all the time. Makes chiastic structures because they want you to see when you get to that middle thing. That's so huge and important. And for Ruth that is... Your people are gonna be my people. Your God are gonna be, I don't wanna be a Moabite Gentile anymore. I wanna be engrafted into the people of Israel. I don't wanna follow pagan idolatry gods. I wanna know the one true God, Yahweh. I am a conversion. I'm a convert. I am a convert. I am a believer in Yahweh. I trust in your God now. All other gods are false gods. I believe in the one true God. And so Naomi points out the, to Ruth, go follow Orpah. And Ruth says, no, I'm not going to do it. And so Ruth isn't confessing faith in Naomi. She's confessing faith in Yahweh. In this moment, Ruth is saved, she's converted, and she now follows Yahweh. One of the clearest conversions in the, in the Old Testament is here. She's saying, the reason why I'm going to stay with you, Naomi, is because I belong to Yahweh. I believe in him. And so she wants to be a part of the covenant people. She wants to make uh, Naomi's God, though Naomi hasn't been necessarily in this moment, it's the, great wit- the greatest witness, which just helps us understand when people get saved, it's God, right? Right? It's the Lord that does it. No matter how bad of a witness you think you are, you, you should still be a, do the best you can. But if someone's gonna get saved, praise the Lord, the Lord is going to do it uh, in us and through us. Uh, he gets the glory, not us. And so she's declaring that the God that made a covenant with Abraham that brought the people out of Egypt, this, Ruth is saying, that's my God. And so it's even confirmed for us in the next chapter. When you look at Ruth chapter two, verse 12, It says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full rule been given to you, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so talking about Ruth, she has come to take refuge under the Lord's wings. And of course, uh, as we see shelter under wings from all kinds of Psalms, this means that there's a personal trust. There's a personal faith that Ruth has in the Lord. And so this this is authentic Christianity. She's not like Orpah who goes after the gods. Instead, she turns her backs on the gods of this world in order to, to not have anything of this world, but only have Christ. Orpah takes uh, the, the wide road to Moab. Ruth takes the narrow road to Bethlehem. She becomes a follower of Yahweh. And then you see what happens here. After, after you see the chiastic structure and she says, you're gonna, you're, I'm gonna follow you. When Naomi saw that she was determined, this is awesome, verse 18. When Naomi saw she was determined to go with her, she just didn't say anything. Naomi's just like, I got nothing to say. That's awesome. Maybe she's thinking it's awesome. That's all speculation. One one commenter says this, Ruth's eloquent declaration of devotion to Naomi leaves the older woman speechless. No doubt she was impressed by Ruth's rhetoric, but it was the firmness of her resolve and the determination of her voice that convinced Naomi to back off and stop trying to convince her to return to Moab. In other words, she's saying, I'm a follower of Yahweh now. I'm a follower of him. I love him forever. Stop trying to convince me otherwise. And so there's, in this particular section in the, in the third conversation, we see Ruth's conversion. So why is it important for us to, to notice that? What's, what's great about that? Obviously, someone's converted, right? This is awesome. Uh, so it's one of the bright spots in chapter one. It's one of the great spots of seeing God's providence in chapter one that someone's converted. God's going to now use Ruth in bitter Naomi's life in a significant way. And so we're going to see how the Moabite woman Ruth is used in... Naomi's life because it helps us understand how much God loves Naomi. And so through this also, this is why it's great, through this Moabite woman Ruth, King David will eventually be born. And in the New Testament we see as this Gentile woman's being grafted in, in the New Testament we see since Ruth is being grafted in, likely everybody in this room gets to be engrafted in as Gentiles into this great family of God. So the conversion of Ruth is great in that way. Also, um, we can see our salvation and Ruth's salvation. Ruth was an outsider, and then God saved her and made her a part of the family of God, just like us. Ruth was once dead in her sin, and now she's been made alive, just like us. Ruth was once an idolater, worshiping false gods in Moab, and now she worships the one true God, Israel, of Israel. And just like us, we, we get to, because of Christ, worship God. And we can also see another thing. Ruth points out something amazing when she says, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Now I want to I highlight that first half. Not, not just that she's a conversion, a, a convert now of Yahweh, but she also understands that salvation also means that we're saved to a people. Um, we can gain insight that salvation means we're saved into a community. My people, she understands that when I'm saved to God, I'm also saved to a family. Um, And so the same for us. When we're saved, we're saved to a community, a church. uh, A people called out, an ecclesia of people called out to be a part of that family. So every person that's a believer in Christ, this means that you're also called to be a part of a family, which is what we experience here, which is a great thing. Churches are filled with Ruth's, and Naomi's and Boaz's, right? And some are easy to love and some aren't, but we're called to love everybody. Not just the great Boaz's or the easy to love Ruth's, but even the hard to love Naomi's. And so everybody here thinks they're Ruth and Boaz. No one thinks they're Naomi, but you might be a Naomi and you might not realize it, but it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. The point is this. Love everyone in the church, no matter who they are and where they are, because they've been called to be a part of this family. They've been called to be a part of this, these people. And so we care about them like God cares about them. Salvation means we're saved to a community. Now, salvation doesn't mean that everything's perfect for you on earth. Everything doesn't get great for Ruth. Naomi still is going to have difficult times. Salvation does mean that our sins are forgiven ever forever by the perfect Jesus, and we will be with him in eternity. That's what it means. And so for these ladies, it's a long road home as they go back home. And so maybe you're like them. You've wandered a far away. You've been off in Moab and it's time to come home. Maybe that's your life right now. And I would just say, come home. Come home right now. You don't have a 50 mile trek to Moab. You have literally a close your eyes and prayer to, Lord, I'm coming home. That's all it is. Your return is not as difficult as theirs. Lord, I want to come home. So come home. Third scene. This is what the the arrival at home looks like. Third scene. You can go ahead and put it up. The arrival back home, 19 through 22. Um, If you didn't grow up in Rock Hill, you grew up in another city. When you go home to that city and you haven't been there in a long time, it feels weird, right, from what you grew up in. It feels different. All of a sudden, there's stuff everywhere. Like, where did all this stuff come from? And who are all these people? I don't know. That's what's going on with Naomi. All right? She's going back to a place she hasn't been to 10 to 15 years. She knows some people. She doesn't know people. They're excited to see her, but she's not necessarily excited to see them. There's, there's a bit of a buzz in the city. Naomi's back, Naomi's back. What is she doing? What's, where's she been? What's going on? And so, but she's not excited to see them. Like, I, 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 why do you want to talk to me? Uh, and so you can see uh, that's what's happening here. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came into Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. There's a buzz because of them. And the women said, oh, is this Naomi? You're back. And so they remember, they remember pleasant Naomi. They remember sweet, pleasant Naomi. Her name's Naomi. And she's quick to let them know. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Don't call me sweetie pie. Call me bitter. That's who I am now. I'm a bitter person. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi, now the whole town's in a stir and they see this Moabite stranger Ruth and they're wanting to know who's going on and she immediately just, right, right up front. We can, we can appreciate the open honesty that, that Naomi has from, from the get-go. Uh, don't call me pleasant anymore because I'm not. You can just call me bitter. She has lost so much and she's not gonna put on the facade. This is good, right? This is good. She doesn't do the typical church. How are you doing in the, in the midst of all your tragedies? I'm fine. That's what we do, right? How are you doing? Okay, I'm good. That's great, I think, that she's not doing that. She's not putting on a fake facade. Instead, she's saying, I'm bitter. That's how I'm doing. And we don't know how to handle that in our church, right? And in, in, in real life in North America, when we say, actually, I'm not doing great at all. And you're like, okay, good luck with all that. Hope you can find some help. Like I just wanted you to say, okay. Um, so be prepared if people be real, it's okay. We need to be like Naomi in that moment where things aren't going well and say, I'm not okay. I'm bitter. Should she stay that way? Of course not. Can she in that moment say that's how she feels? Please do that. Please. That's what she says. I'm bitter. And we see the depth of her bitterness in the statement that she makes in here. Don't call me... Mara, she's going to make four accusations against God here. And we can see the depths of her bitterness here. For the Almighty has de- dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I just wanted to see how you were. I mean, just hadn't seen you in a while. Gonna welcome you back to the city. <laughs> you know, like they weren't prepared for that. Like, so she says, God's made my life bitter. She's accusing God of afflicting her. She says, the Lord has brought her back empty. Now I do want to point out in the Hebrew, uh, this one little phrase here in verse, where are we? we 21, I went away full and it says, and the Lord brought me back empty. Take that word empty and you can move it to right before and in the the, it can be, I went away full and empty, God didn't do it. I'm not assigning blame to God as empty. I went away full and empty, the Lord brought me back. So it could be just saying, I got empty and God's gracious hand, the Lord brought me back. I think it's that. But nevertheless, um, and our English has been moved. Why call me Naomi? And so she's saying, or she was just saying that she's empty and God brought her back. So, and something else, God has brought me back out of Moab. And then she says, God's brought this calamity. Um, And in this midst of her bitterness, what she needs and what you and I need whenever we're in the midst of this is we need to remember the grace of Jesus. Um, we need to get better at remembering. Naomi could have looked back at even her history of Israel and remembered the grace of God in the Exodus. She could remember uh, lots of, providential good things that God had done in the people of Israel, but she's bitter in the moment and she didn't. And what we need to do is get good at remembering the grace of God in the midst of difficult times. We have even a greater Exodus. What Jesus has done for us, we can look at the incarnation, the crucifixion, resurrection, and the ascension. We can remember that Jesus she said, she's empty. Jesus emptied himself in Philippians 2 and wit and drank the bitter cup of the cross so that we get to drink the, gra- the cup of grace. We can remember what Christ has done for us. In our bitterness, we need to get good at remembering. This is why every Sunday, we want you to learn to remember by singing songs of God's grace, listening to sermons about the gospel of God, speaking the gospel to each other, not just in the lobby, but in community groups throughout the week. This is why we take the Lord's Supper every week so that we can remember that Jesus has done what he's done for us. Jesus gave us a sacred ordinance in the Lord's Supper so it us to remember so we don't forget what we've done. In the midst of bitterness, the Lord is designed for us to remember. And so here, Ruth is actually the better example between the two ladies than Naomi. And I'm not trying to discount the experience that, that Naomi has dealt with. She's, she's had terrible tragedies in her life. Sinclair Ferguson uh, and his Ruth Commentary quotes a, 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 sermon, a, a hymn by William Cowper talking about Naomi's situation. He said, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and they shall break in blessings in your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour this bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. It's difficult now, but God does bring kindness. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is own interpreter and he will make it plain. So in the midst of bitterness, God does bring goodness eventually. It's tough for us to see. Verse 22 is in a large part a transition statement. It can be chapter one and it can be in chapter two. We're going to use it today. The return trip at home is complete. Naomi returned in the Ruth the Moabite and her daughter-in-law with her who returned from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem, back to Bethlehem, starting in Bethlehem, ending in Bethlehem at the barley harvest. And so here we see for the first time, she's called Ruth the Moabite, which will be repeatedly used now a few more times in the book, reminding us of this ethnic tension that's happening between the Jews and Gentiles and bringing in the drama uh, that's going to happen. But we see as it concludes in verse 22, Ruth begins and ends talking about uh, the need of bread and Bethlehem, talking about how uh, Bethlehem is the house of bread and it mentions the barley harvest in the end. And so we're seeing that the change that happens as that's happening is in verse six where God comes and visits his people. We hear in verse six where uh, Naomi So the Lord had visited his people. A kind grace of God came and the Lord visited his people and that's what brought her home. Because of God's grace of visiting, she decided to return home. And so uh, she comes back to the house of bread. Now Jesus in John 6 calls himself the bread of life. And in, only in Jesus can we find ultimate satisfaction in eternal life. And so it's reminding us of the fact that Jesus for us is our bread. He's our bread of life that gives us new life. We left, we were born empty. We were experiencing uh, death. We were experiencing defeat because of our sin. We were empty. And when we come to, it, as it says in verse six, the Lord visited, us, visited his people. He awakened us. And because of that, now we get to experience what it means to be forgiven of sin and have a new heart change, and we're given new life. And so because of that, we get to take hold of the bread of life, Jesus, and we can now be saved. And so the gospel in Ruth 1 is this. As I said, uh, Naomi is emblematic of Israel. She left Yahweh and pursued idols, and the grace of the Lord Jesus, in verse 6, brought her home. It was God's grace that brought her home. Naomi is also then emblematic of us. We are sinners. We are idolaters. We willingly chase after sin. And we received the righteous judgment of God because of our sin. Like Elimelech, we received death. But God has been gracious to us. He called us to come home just like he did to Naomi. And he put forward his only son, Jesus, to take the punishment on the, sin, on the cross for our sin. And he called us and he wooed us out of Moab. He wooed us out of sin and brought us back to him. And because of that, we get to take a hold of the bread of life. He forgives us, gives us of our sin. He puts us in a family of faith, in a community. We put our faith in him. He, He forgives us of our sin. He promises that we will one day get to be in the promised land at home with him eternally in heaven but call because of Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. The bread of life Jesus has been good to us just like he's been to them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this great gospel in the book of Ruth that we get to see and understand with a greater understanding of what Jesus has done for us. It helps us remember as we enter into the Lord's Supper, Lord, it helps us remember that your providential hand is in our lives as well. We may experience it difficult times, but we have Jesus. We have Jesus. And so help us, Lord, continually remember the good news of Jesus and what he's done for us in our own lives. And though this life is tough, we're not promised an easy life. We, do, we are promised eternity in heaven with you. So help us continue to put all of our hope in that. And while we're here, while we're here, Lord, may we live lives that honor you. As we go into the Lord's Supper, help us remember the good news of Jesus, that he is the bread of life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to the time of the Lord's Supper where we remember the good news of Jesus. And so if you're a believer in Christ, this time is for you. You can come forward. There's-